I'm John Mooney and welcome to The Dark State. This podcast is brought to you through the generous financial support of our subscribers on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. If you wish to contribute and gain access to more exclusive episodes, please do subscribe. And now, on with the show. This week I'm looking at policing the Irish border. The region is synonymous with paramilitarism, contraband smuggling and money laundering. My guests today are Pat Murray and Ken Pennington, former police officers who have vast experience of the unique security challenges which the border presents. Welcome to The Dark State. Before we begin, Pat, could I first welcome you to the show? Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career in Angarda Siakana? Well, um, I retired in 2018, having joined in 1985. I was 33 years uh, in the Guards, and my last 10 years uh, was uh, a detective inspector in the Loud Division, uh, which uh, my office was in Dundalk, and I covered uh, Drogheda and RD, and I dealt with uh, various aspects of policing, uh, including um, keeping an eye on the border and dissident activity on that. Uh, but I, I, I was a senior investigating officer, and in that period of time I was in Dundalk, I had actually investigated 12 murders. So uh, I was um, pretty busy, pretty busy. You've been around the block on this issue. And Ken, could you tell me a little bit about yourself as well? You, you've a vast experience in the police service of Northern Ireland. Well, I um, I retired a bit like Pat in 2018. Uh, my service started in South Armagh, where I would have done joint or performed joint military police patrols uh, in the four kill and desperate areas. Um, after that, I served up in East Tyrone, uh, which again, people forget, there's a bit of a border there as well. And we did that, spent a lot of my time in public order policing. At one point in time, I was the um, roads policing commander and had responsibility for liaison with the guards the whole length of the border. I also did some work for our close protection unit, which required the handover of people at the border, um, VIPs and, and so forth. And I also worked in criminal justice, uh, which was my last post before I retired. So between the two of you, you have a vast wealth of knowledge of this area. So I'm going to proceed then with our interview and our discussion today. The border has unique problems and it has a unique problem with organised crime. It's heavily, heavily influenced by culture and history. Pat, can you describe the scale of the problem that exists on the Irish border in terms of organised crime? Well, if you look first to say how, how big is the border, like it stretches... 310 miles. It has 208 border crossings. 34 of them are in Loud. It's, it's a phenomenal distance and uh, a huge problem from the point of view is that basically you have two uh, separate countries and you have, uh, from a policing point of view, uh, from our perspective at the time, uh, like, you know, as being a policeman up there, like, you, if you gave chase to someone, you had to stop at the border, you couldn't go over the border. You know, that's, that was a big thing. There was, even though there was great cooperation between the PSNI and Agari Shiakana, there were, was those times when, you know, criminals could, 
basically drive through you to get to the border and you knew that and they knew the likelihood of being caught was was was, was slim like so um that was one of the the problems obviously with more recent times you have uh, in organized criminal gangs who are let's say looking at the entire country as their uh you know where they can sell their their wares uh, and do their crime but uh, more recently there is you know evidence that let's say criminal groupings on both sides of the divide in the north are coming together to to gain the fruits of, of what's, what's, what's uh, available there. And in particular, the drugist trade has, uh, in recent times, taken on a new uh, phenomenon. Like Whereas before you had, let's say, the smuggling involved, like, like cigarettes or diesel, alcohol, and uh, human trafficking. Uh, and money laundering, obviously, is still a big thing. But in recent times now, it's uh, drugs seems to be the uh, choice of organised crime groups to to sell and deal in. And do you believe that this is a marked shift from what went before? Uh, from what you're saying, is this are criminal gangs more in the ascent as opposed to republican paramilitaries? Yes, and the organised like I, I I did investigate the murder of Adrian Donoghue and. Uh, like, you know, it became apparent to us like the organized crime groupings where uh, people that weren't, that weren't involved in, in paramilitary um, exercises and that they were, they were sort of uh, young guys who had come together to, to, have, to, to seek a day and, uh, you know, manipulate the, the, the situation in respect of what the border brought to them for criminality purposes. Um, but yes, there is obviously the a dissident element of, of, of criminality, you know, who's still dealing cigarettes, alcohol, uh, and, and their machinery and that type of stuff, you know. Uh, you have, let's say, an element, depending on what organization you were looking at, like in particular the, at the time, the INLA were very much involved in extortion and that type of stuff. So um, they're all problems that go, go hand in hand with the border, like, um, and the border has been very, I suppose disruptive to policing both sides uh, in that, like, you know, you come to a line in the road and you can't go any further. But uh, I think that will change. And um, I have a very good story to tell about a double murder uh, that I investigated with uh, the two deceased. It was a guy called Joey Redmond and Anthony Burnett, who were shot dead in Ravensdale and the car set on fire. And I was left with uh, a burnt out car two skeletons and I from the initial inquiries I knew that uh, I had to get assistance from north of the border to acquire evidence and luckily enough uh, I knew the commander in chief up there a guy a very 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 extremely good leader a guy named David Beck and I explained to David uh, I needed to guess uh certain things in South Armagh, CCTV statements, that type of stuff. And he, like, was very frank with me and said, look, if, if we go down there, they'll spit on us and that's it, we, they won't cooperate with us and, uh, but they'll probably cooperate with you. So he gave me permission uh, and written permission to, to go north uh, and I, I assembled my uh, 
team and we went north and we secured the CCTV, we secured statements, we done a car reconstruction in that north of the border, all under the, uh, you know, the, the, the permission from the commander-in-chief there. Now, as a result of that and acquiring that evidence, we were able to bring a guy to court charged with the two murders. And on the second attempt in the Central Criminal Court, he was convicted by a jury. And uh, he's doing two life sentences at the moment. But uh, what was very uh, interesting to me is that, um, obviously, David Beck made a statement to say that he gave me permission to inform him on that. And uh, that was accepted by the defence uh, as being legitimate. And there was no ever any kick up about the legitimacy of the statements or the evidence that we secured in the North. And that was, let's say, on Garda Shirkan of going North, doing the business and coming back. Uh, and I think there is a, there definitely is a, a mechanism there, or there should be a mechanism there for the PSMA to come down south and do something similar, like, you know. You can't just stop at a white line in the road and know in your heart and soul, if I can't cross that line, I'm not going to be able to bring someone to justice. There has to be a, a you know, an understanding on both sides that look if we can uh, not encroach, but can go into the other's area uh, to, to to secure evidence and to, that you know. But um, that's just one uh, example uh, of, on a positive uh, aspect, you know. But uh, um, but yes, the border has caused difficulties down the years, you know. And uh, uh, but like I think there is. Certainly, in my own opinion, and I have proved it, that uh, cooperation from both sides will lead to um, uh, results for, for, for the police on, on both sides. You know? Ken, if I could bring you in next, uh, do you concur mm-hmm. with that opinion? Um, what, who are the dominant players there now, as far as you were concerned? Well, first of all, I totally concur with that. And in the absence of a legislative framework like Schengen, uh, quick pursuit policy and so forth, it very much comes down to relationships. Um, knowing, as we used to say in policing, uh, in this job, you need to know the people you need to know before you need to know them. So it came down to building those up on the ground uh, with our, so that uh, a police officer in the north on a radio with a police officer in the south knew who he was talking to. And and that's also the command level. And there's a lot of work to try and build that degree of trust um, uh, between the, the two organisations. And it, it works well. It does not work perfectly. You know, you can set up parallel operations, but they're all in advance and pre-planned. Um, and a lot of what happens there is spontaneous, and it's very difficult to operate. The the other thing I observed, and I'll start this with a caveat, is um, I certainly owe my life to members of the community in South Africa. People who had a road stop told me something, which meant I wasn't killed. So I totally respect the communities in the border regions. But there is a sense of suspicion there as well. And it's not just about the police, but uh, a friend of mine, he was working for the BBC, and he went down to uh, look at uh, TV licenses. And he stops in the street in Newton Hamilton. And he says to this gentleman, could you tell me where Thomas Street is? And the gentleman says, I have no idea. 
I'm not from around here. As my friend said, Ken, he was standing there with the dog on the lead and carrying his shopping in the bag. So everybody that's not part of the community is nearly, there's nearly a guarded response and suspicion. And that's why you have to be very proactive in your community policing and build bridges. And people will differentiate between the police and their police. And that's what needs to happen around the border. You need to be hard to spend time investing in those. In terms of who's the main players, well, um, depends which bit of the border we're on, but certainly you have some elements of the continuity IRA still running around. Uh, the real IRA are under the radar, but I don't think they've gone away. Um, you have potentially former power members engaged in criminal activity. You know, the idea that the Good Friday Agreement would see tourists from either side all go into politics or study for a trade um, wasn't actually correct. Some of them just moved into their old criminal habits and have continued to do field laundering, counterfeit goods, possibly drugs now as well. Um, and so they're all there. The organized crime gangs are, are probably have are echoes of different parts of those organizations. And we have a few freelance um, members as well. So it's a very complicated picture concerning organized crime there. It's almost hybrid. Some of it's paramilitarism. Some of it is organized crime. Some of it's criminality on its own. Some of it is paramilitary on its own, paramilitarism on its own. It's a very mixed bag. Well, the, the Europeans uh, in their um, report on their 2020 report, which um, actually refers to 2019, so still involves the UK, uh, their uh, European Union Terrorism Situation Report, trend report, uh, 2020, it uses the term nexus. It's like a, a floating Venn diagram where they will use each other. And of course, they bump into each other in, in prisons and places like that. And they will use each other's expertise. They will use it as a funding method. I mean, terrorists learning off organized crime. Um, you may find that organized crime is taxed to be allowed to operate in an area. Um, also, if you have uh, a terror campaign um, in a difficult to police area, then that creates an area of safe operation for the organised crime gangs. How much, you, you made reference there to the culture of silence. People tend not to say anything. They are very distrustful of people they regard as outsiders. How prevalent is that? Um, I, I mean, I left police in 2018, but um, just before when we thought Brexit was going to happen, uh, back uh, in early 2019, it was March 2019, I had a Swedish team came uh, over to do journalists to do a talk about the border and it's on TV. But we went to Balik and I said to them, um, not Balik from Anna, Balik from I said, you've got about five minutes to take your pictures. So we drove in there and no sooner were we out of the car than the lady from the shop came out with a phone in her hand, an elderly lady, probably in her mid-60s, and she said, do you mind if I ask you what you're doing? And of course, they, I kept my mouth shut, um, but the two Swedish journalists said, no, just took pictures about Brexit. And I said, that's it, we're out of here. So there's still that, not only a reluctance to speak, but to inform on anything that is irregular in their view. 
Pat, the the Garda Shikana, did the the guards encounter that type of problem on the southern side of the border? Uh, was that some, or, or was there a much more friendly or uh, you know more uh, open approach to members of the guards when they were dealing with crime around that region? Yeah, well, on the border and over the country, there's an element of fear, and there's sort of fear from people they know not to talk or not to tell the police anything, and if they do that, there'll be no comeback, and and that's it. That's 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 the way they think. It doesn't mean that they're bad people or anything like that. They just have a fear of uh, a paramilitary backlash, and that is within all of the people on the border. Now, I must say, like having investigators and being the senior investigating officer on Adrian Dunhill's murder, like it took us obviously north of the border and the border and south of the border. And I would say that people south of the border would cooperate with Angarda Shiakana and there's no great problem. Uh, I found through the example I gave there of the Dublin border that the people north of the border were willing to deal with Angarda Shiakana, but not the PSMI. And uh, I remember that particular investigation, one particular shop we were in, the owner of the shop said, we'll make a statement here and we'll cooperate, but don't bring the PSMI down here. And uh, he was making that quite clear to us, like, you know, and, you know, you can see where Davy Beck was quite correct in his assessment of what would happen if the PSNI was to try and secure the evidence for us, like, it just wouldn't have happened. So, um, uh, that's what my, uh, you know, uh, experience was. But, like, people south of the border, um, we found them willing to cooperate and, you know, helped out in any way they could, like, um, but there is an element of fear if something happens and somebody witnesses something and that they're inclined to keep their mouth shut. And, and, was, and was that difficult for, to navigate those cultural issues? It, 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 did that present significant problems for investigations? Well, if, if some, someone doesn't, like, you know, if someone doesn't want to talk, you can't make them and that's it. And all you can do is bring it to before I bring it as far as you can by asking them or, you know, but if, you know, you, you get into whole realms then if someone is withholding information or this, that and the other, you can have arrests and this, that and the other, but it's always best for someone to come clean and tell you, like, or make their statements, you know, without having to put down any other route, you know, but it does cause problems, yes. But we overcame those problems by, you know, looking at different angles and different ways of securing evidence of that and, uh, we were able to solve the crime at the end of the day. But yes, it is a problem. But as Ken said, like, you know, earlier, it was alluding to that if you had, a, you know, investment in community policing or a policing structure involving both Angarda Shirkan and the PSI on the border, I think you would um, reap the benefits of, of people uh, coming forward uh, and, and helping out. And, I, and I'll tell you why, I can give you a very good example. Uh, in 2015, I set up Operation Scale, which was, uh, this was set up after the, the murder of, uh, Garda Tony Golden, where we had been crying out for manpower, uh, like, you know, had written reports as thick as your elbow, like, you know, for the reason why we wanted more manpower in the division. And that went all the way up to, uh, a certain, Commissioner's desk and never left his desk, but uh, 
the, the, the manpower levels were falling, and climate was was sort of not going down with you know was 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 increasing. So we got an influx of manpower, obviously after uh, Tony's death, which is usually the reactionary result from senior management or get people in there and people were brought on in temporary transfer that I was I could see that we had an abundance of manpower then. And not an abundance, but we had a fair lot of manpower that we could do something with. So we set up Operation Scale, which was a, a, a an intelligence led operation to um uh, you know, tackle organized crime on the border and uh, local crime within Dundalk Town. Now, as part of that, we had a, a, a strategy of checkpoints, uh, which we did on the border uh, and around the border regions. And I even got a visitor a, 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 and we, every car that was stopped on the road, we, we were telling them that we're, you know, here, we don't, we're not out to crucify you or anything like that. So we just want to make you know that we're here, that we are an organization that we can help and uh, we we gave people uh, the leaflets which said that like you know to cooperate with us and you know you won't be disappointed and as a result of that and we had a uh, let's say a policy of discretion if you stop a guy with no tax or his tax was out a month or two it wasn't the the, the objective to do them to to you know but you would give advice to look at your taxes out for two months you need to get that sorted out and. People appreciated um, that type of policing, you know. Mm. And as a result of that, we noticed a significant increase in intelligence coming in, uh, which led us to act on this as under operation scale. And we had many a seizure in respect of, of bottling plants and diesel laundering plants and drug catches and one thing and another. So it is the, the community will respond to you if you treat them right and there does have to be a, some sort of a system or a, you know a strategy on both sides of the border to get the public uh, on side and know that you are there for them and the most important thing you don't let them down you don't lie to them and you follow through on your commitments and you will find that they People who probably disappear or wouldn't cooperate are now in a position to, you know, stand up to the marks. Ken, you again have worked on the border. There, there are the, the PSNI is, has adopted a policy whereby it is actually closing down stations in some parts of Armagh. Uh, they seem to believe that there may not be the same requirements for a policing presence in those areas. Is that a retrograde step given the scale of the criminality that that is taking place in that region? Uh, it's not only retrograde. We talked about building relations with communities. And we still, have, uh, I mean, I, I looked at their report into this and they talk about one call per day in Gosnaglen versus 15 in Newton Hamlin. That doesn't mean that there aren't 15 people who need the police in Gosma Glen. They're just not phoning. So it's about trust. And trust is its own currency. And I agree with everything Pat said. And I ran traffic branch in the north, uh, roads business, as they call it. And um, exactly the same instruction. You know, if you find somebody with a bald tire and he's just lost his job, and he's got a child in the back, get him to turn up with a new tire. It's not about the performance. So 
And it is going to come down to people knowing their local officers. And this will detract from that. The other thing I think is it's preemptive. We are in a time of volatility. We have had Lord Frost talking about uh, Article 16 of the Northern Protocol. Um, does that lead to European tariffs on British goods? Does that lead to retaliatory action by the British against the EU? Does that see us move from the sea border, which is immensely more practical, to trying to enforce the land border? And if that happens, um, you know, that's, that's going to be going to require a police presence there. Mm. Now, the other thing I'd say is I note in their report that they don't have the money to build a replacement. And having decommissioned police stations in the course of my career, those are reinforced buildings. It costs an absolute fortune just to move them, let alone to rebuild them. And the money isn't there. And it shouldn't come out of help, and it shouldn't come out of education or anything else. So I think it's preemptive. Uh, certainly at the minute, I think if you look into the crystal ball, it's very, very vague and misty. And to think that um, closing a base down at this stage, uh, using information that was gathered to the report in a different time, is certainly And do you get a sense that Brexit may yet prove to be another problem in all of this? It, it, now, again, there hasn't been the upsurge in paramilitarism that some people thought there may be, although uh, organisations like the new IRA, they've continued to develop, etc. And so have loyalist paramilitary groups. But is the, are the full consequences of Brexit yet to emerge as far as you're oh, well, concerned? Let's just talk about new, new upsurge. I'll reference that European report. So it actually looks entitled 2020, refers to 2019. And it, you can see that across the EU at that time, 64 attacks happened in the UK, okay, okay. Mm. out of um, 119 across the EU. So over 50% of all terrorist attacks are in the UK. Virtually all of those are in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland alone accounted for 50% of terrorist attacks across the EU. And that's the accepted normality. So and the threat remains severe. So uh, we're still in the midst of that. The problem I have with Brexit is these groups won't rely on Brexit to do what they're going to do, but they will use it as a narrative. And if I had to draw a distinction between terrorist groups, and this is a very simple distinction, and organized crime groups, it's that terrorist groups need a story. They need a justification. Organized crime just needs a euro sign, a dollar sign, or a pound sign. And Brexit is a story. And if we move to a hard border on the land, that will disrupt the, those communities. And that will be used to recruit and alienate the police even further if they try to enforce it. And there's some things that have slipped through the radar on this. Uh, back in 2019, the UK government changed the legislation and it didn't really make the headlines but I remember studying terrorist legislation and I noticed that it had been reviewed and changed to the Counter-Terrorism and Border Security Act. Border Security? Why is that linked with terrorism? And it creates the power of the police pretty much indiscriminately and customs um, to search anybody without any reasonable suspicion 
within one mile of the border and at any train station, which is the first stop once we've crossed. Now, it hasn't been used, but it's already written. So that's my sort of concern. I, I think it divides a narrative um, which will alienate those communities who primarily voted to remain um, uh, and will be actually facing the grief that Brexit could bring to them. In essence, you are suggesting that the lessons of the past are, are being forgotten. Well, effectively what that piece of legislation does is it will um, primarily allow the stop and search, which is always a sensitive thing, of people within one mile of the border without any justification. And the police in Northern Ireland already have pretty, pretty strong legislation around that. Um, so I'm, I'm not seeing the benefit. But... Um, what it means is those communities, which are primarily nationalist, are going to be treated differently from the wider community. Now, that never works out well in Northern Ireland. And we've seen the history of that and the civil rights and so forth. So there's a real danger that it provides a narrative and people are able to draw a distinction between how they're treated and how others are treated. And that steps away from my concept of human rights and equality. Pat, if I could bring you back in, if you could predict the future, do you think the area will eventually become like everywhere else in the Republic, or will it continue to pose a challenging security problem? Well, that's a big question, and <laughs> I don't have the answer. But what I would say is that uh, I think there will definitely be a referendum at some stage on the uh, you know, do the North want to join with the South? And uh, it may well be uh, a yes vote. And if that is the case, well, then all the goalposts change in respect of, you know, everything in particular policing and how, let's say, the area which was the border would be policed. Uh, you would have one police force then, um, you know, but like they're, they're, that's a big question to ask and one that I certainly can't answer. But uh, as it stays as it is, there is that divide. And once there's a divide, there's a fear and an untrust. And from a policing perspective, there has to be something united with uh, the PSNI and Agarda Shikana, the police, the likes of South Dharma and that, like, you know, to, 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 to get the people to see that look, there's another way, there's another way of thinking. There are uh, facilities there to help people out who may find themselves in sticky situations or wherever, like, you know. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the way I look at it. But look, at it. once the border is there in any shape or form, it's, it's problems. It's problems. Ken, I'll let you have the last word on this. If you could predict the future, what do you think will eventually happen? It's a bit like being asked to be the ghost of Christmas future, really, isn't it? Um, it's, it's very, very volatile at the minute, as I said, around the political um, uh, events that are going on uh, with um, Brexit and so forth and the Northern Ireland Protocol. If it is to return to some degree of normality, uh, I agree with the referendum vote stuff changes the whole level playing field. But if it is going to get better, then there needs to be political will. And I just don't see that happening. I see, and this is me, I have no dog in the fight, as they would say, but I see a willingness south of the border to engage um, better road links, 
you know, invest in, 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 in the whole island, if you like. But I think unionism is a very difficult place at the minute. Uh, having as the DUP supported Brexit, they're now reaping the woes of that. And they would see anything that might actually resolve the border issue, like joint policing and things like that, um, as some way of decreasing their concept of sovereignty. So I think it's going to continue continue to um, be what it is until the politics change or demographics and democracy decides. Will a border poll present more problems in terms of could it, I suppose, initiate uh, loyalist paramilitarism uh, to come back to the fore. I know there's been a lot of grumblings about this in parts of East Belfast, etc. But it, would that contribute to the sense of unease around that area? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was in charge of the flags protest in Belfast um, back in 2012, 2013. Um, and removing the Union flag from flying every day just on key dips uh, resulted in three months of rioting, twenty million pounds worth of policing, and fifteen million pounds worth of loss to the commercial centre. And that was a flag. This will be um, significant to those communities uh, and how they feel about their identity. Um, so yes, you will. And terrorism on the loyal side is different from on the Republican side. It tends to be technical. Um, competent and, and planned on the Republican side, except for people like the RNLA. But the Loyalists, their trick is that they will motivate the youth and they'll bring them out onto the states in their stardoms. And they'll destroy their own areas and everything they want to destroy until they get their agenda. And that's what has to be planned for. Which is why um, it is something about uh, you know, Noah built the ark before the rain started. It's starting to think about how we're going to reduce that. I don't think you'll eliminate it. I think if there was a border pull and it went for United Ireland, we would have some form of disruption on that. You've been listening to Pat Murray and Ken Pennington. I'd like to thank you both for joining me today on The Dark State. And that concludes today's edition of The Dark State. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or post a review. I hope you will join us again next week. Thank you.